A reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And the disciple came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. May God bless his word. You may be seated. Well, I was in the back of the room, so I couldn't see your eyes, but I imagine there were a few eyebrows that go up, up especially in the beginning of this passage, um, because we do come to a very controversial passage where Jesus calls a Canaanite woman a dog. That's the beginning of the passage. Uh, and, you know, one benefit of having some Gen Z people on staff is that they expose me to certain TikTokers that I would otherwise never have known about. And uh, this week, Ben, we, he knew the passage we were on, and he sent me this self-proclaimed TikTok pastor, which I did not know was a thing, but this TikTok pastor was using this passage to explain that Jesus was a racist and the woman's the hero because she stands up to power and puts him in his place. Others have used this passage to justify even worse things like uh, not only racism, but genocide in, in, some, in some cases. Probably that's not where any of your minds are going this morning, but it does still raise eyebrows. Some people I know have read this and think, well, that feels really rude of Jesus. But what I want to do this morning is I want to make an argument that this, none of those things are what's going on, that Jesus is saying something that might be even more controversial in the original, to the original audience, and thirdly, that the TikTok pastor needs to go to seminary. I, I probably won't have time for that one, but amen, I heard it. All right. <laughs> this passage is actually a passage about saving faith. And we're going to walk through this passage, and I want to see specifically that saving faith is for every type of person, and saving faith is in Jesus alone. That's what this passage is about. So first, saving faith is for all types of people. Again, context, because this is we've been in a passage that's, we, we've been in some chapters that are all linked. So Jesus fed the 5,000. He dismissed his disciples to go out on, to, to sail to another shore of the the lake. He met the disciples in the middle of the lake by walking on water. They went to the other shore where Jesus was hoping to get some rest, but he did not get that rest because the crowd followed him, wanting more miracles, more healings. And so in our passage, Jesus has taken the disciples out of Israel, all the way to a region called Tyre and Sidon, where they meet a woman. And we know from Matthew's account and Mark's account that this woman was a Greek-speaking Phoenician Canaanite woman in a part of the world that was under the rule of Syria. So this, this would have been uncomfortable, I think, to the disciples for a number of reasons, not least of which is from what I read, it would have taken weeks or months to make this journey from where they were over to Tyre and Sidon by foot. But on top of that, they are in Gentile territory. 
So the, the religious leaders of that day would have uh, probably wouldn't have been troubled more by anything than being ceremonially unclean. And one of the ways you became most ceremonially un, that's a big word, ceremonially unclean is by having contact with Gentiles. And here they are in Gentile territory, surrounded by Gentiles. So it, it feels to me like Jesus' plan is not only to get some rest, but to go where there are no crowds, to teach the disciples, spend some intensive time just focusing on them. But Jesus has a little trouble staying hidden. There's this woman. Somehow she knows this is Jesus. I don't know how she knows, but she knows. And she cries to him in verse 22, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is seriously oppressed by a demon. And here's where things get a little weird. Jesus ignores her. And then his disciples begged him to send her away. And Jesus responds to them by saying, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, it is true that Jesus was sent first to Israel, but why would he say he sent only to Israel? So I'm going to make the argument that tone and facial expressions matter a lot in any kind of discussion, and I would argue that they matter here too, even though I admit we have access to neither tone or facial expression in this passage, but I, I think it fits really well. I would argue that Jesus is using a hint of sarcasm here to bait the disciples into a teaching moment. So imagine, you know, they don't want Jesus to have anything to do with this woman, and he, and he says something like, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. You know, there's enough like sarcasm in it to kind of beg them to lean in a little more. So then the woman approaches, kneels before Jesus, asks him for help. And this is when he says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Sounds pretty bad. So there's two things I do want us to see. First, dogs was a common derogatory word used by Jews in that time to refer to Gentiles. Wild stray dogs. That doesn't justify yet Jesus' use of it, but it, it is helpful to know that was a common term that he's using and I think even playing on. But again, I think what Jesus is doing here is setting up a teaching moment for his disciples. He's highlighting the fact that this is a Gentile. He's highlighting the fact that there is this great Jew-Gentile divide because he's going to teach them something about who has access to the kingdom. So it's, it's like my dog and my mother-in-law. God rest her soul. My, my dog, not my mother-in-law. <laughs> my mother-in-law's fine. Sorry, my dog. She died a few weeks ago. But so every time we would go to my in-law's house, my, my, whenever my mother-in-law was preparing dinner, the, our little dog was at her feet waiting for some scrap to fall down. And my mother-in-law would say things like, get out of here, you're gonna make me trip, get out of the kitchen. Which of course, my dog didn't understand whole English sentences. And on top of that, the few commands my dog understood were in Italian because that's where we raised her. But none of that really matters because I actually think even though she was talking to the dog, the dog was not her prim like primary audience. I was. <laughs> she's saying something to the dog, hoping that I will hear what she's saying to the dog and remove the dog. And I think a similar thing is happening here in this passage. Jesus, especially in the beginning, he's speaking to this Canaanite woman, but his primary audience in terms of teaching are his disciples because he wants to teach them something about the kingdom. Who is it that has access to this kingdom? 
And I also think he's using a very gentle tone here. And I think that not only because it fits the context and the overall message, I think that because of the word he uses for dog. It isn't the common derogatory slander, slanderous word that means wild stray dog. He uses the word for house pet. It's just, it's gentler in the way that he says it. And so I imagine Jesus speaking to her with maybe a smirk, maybe a wink. So while the statement is still true, he's saying it with the kind of compassion that would invite her to continue with her request. He wants to highlight her Gentileness. So imagine him saying it like, but, you know, she's made a request, but it's not right for the children, sorry, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wink, smirk. He's saying something true, but he's doing it in a way that invites her to continue with her request. So the woman responds by saying, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall at the master's table. So she's not denying her state. She's saying, yes, the way they use the word dogs, that is me. I am a Gentile. I'm outside of the covenant promises of Israel. So she doesn't deny her state. She embraces that. And then she just asks for grace in verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So imagine the shock at this point for the disciples. They didn't even want Jesus to see her. Jesus then in two different verses highlights the fact that she's a Gentile, that there is this Jew-Gentile divide. And then he tells her that she has great faith and her daughter is healed. And this word, this combination of great faith, Jesus uses it elsewhere, but only to Gentiles. He never uses this this phrase, great faith, to any Jewish believer, only to the Gentiles. And in addition to that, he has just healed this Canaanite woman's daughter from demon possession from a distance. Jesus only does that with Gentiles. Jesus never heals over a great distance in that way among the Jews. He wants to communicate something to the disciples about the grandeur of the kingdom that's coming. And sure, it's going to be more clear in the Great Commission. It's going to be more clear at Pentecost. It's going to be more clear at the Jerusalem Council. But he's teaching his disciples something that they would always remember in a way that it would more helpfully interpret all those other things that are going to happen in a little while. The gospel is for all types of people. The kingdom of God is a global kingdom. God's work that has been contained up until this point in a small geographic area of the world is about to be unleashed to the entire world. That's what he's beginning to plant the seeds. In this moment, he's teaching the disciples that. So we need to ask ourselves, and the church has for 2,000 years over time and geographic location, asked ourselves, who do we believe the gospel is for? Who do we believe the gospel is for? Do we really believe that it is for all types of people? And on one level, this certainly should heal man-made racial divisions in the church. I know an African man who came to faith through God's work among some Southern Baptist missionaries over there, 
And later in his life, it was the late 80s, he came to the United States and went to a First Baptist church that I know, and they said, this church is not for your type of people. So so this church believed in the gospel in a way that would motivate them to send resources to the world that people would hear and believe in, hear about and believe in Jesus Christ as long as they don't come and worship with them. There's something amiss about who they believe the gospel is for. But you fast forward just, I don't know, 30, 30 years, I guess, at this point, and we almost have the opposite problem. We find many churches who want diverse color but don't want diverse culture. We want to look like, like we represent a lot of different people as long as they don't bring a different culture inside the church. But to reject the culture of other Christians is to reject Jesus' teaching in this passage and in some cases is to reject Jesus. When we reject color or culture, we are not believing that the gospel is actually for every type of person. So let's take the same question, who is the gospel for and flesh it out in a different way. Who are the people that we consider too far gone? We all have people in our lives. That if we're honest, we, we, we might be tempted to consider them too far gone. Surely, the, this is clearly how the, Israel, the disciples are viewing the Canaanite woman. She's not only a Gentile, but she comes from a people who are historic enemies of Israel. You may remember back in Joshua, The Canaanites in the promised land were the people who God, under Joshua's rule, commanded to wipe these people out. And if if that feels harsh, I've preached on this in Joshua. You can go back online and hear it, and hopefully it'll make a lot more sense. But we're talking about a woman who is a historic enemy of the people of Israel, who is a Gentile, who these disciples do not want Jesus to even speak to. Because they think she's functionally, I think, beyond saving. There are people in our lives who we can think are morally too far gone, who are spiritually too far gone, who are too far gone in their intellectual disagreement with the gospel. Some of you have loved ones that don't embrace your faith and maybe even be actively opposed to it. And I have people like that in my life that if I'm honest, there are times when I just think they feel like they're too far gone. And it, and it can lead to despair or just numbing yourself of the emotions that that brings up. And if that's you too, then let this Canaanite woman be a witness that God saves all types of people. Even those who we just think they're too far gone. And then maybe that type of person God's going to providentially bring some distress in their life like the Canaanite woman's daughter. And it is not a punitive measure because they don't believe in in Jesus. This is a way God is getting a hold of them. This is a way God is showing them all the things that you're hoping in and believing in and finding satisfaction in. They're not going to help you when you need it the most. Only Jesus can. So we keep believing and we keep praying. And others of you, You might be here this morning and feel like you're the person who's too far gone. You know what you've thought, what you've said, what you've done, the ways you have sinned against and betrayed Jesus, and you may just feel like I'm too far gone. You may be the person in pain, and you don't know how to deal with this pain. And if that's you, I would 
hopefully lovingly push and say, you don't understand the magnitude of the grace that God offers you in Jesus Christ. When the Bible says that God saves all types of people, that includes each and every one of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's you, and you want your sins to be washed away, and you want to have a relationship with God that is as if you had never sinned, then I hope the second part of this passage is just as encouraging to you. Saving faith is in Jesus alone. So the disciples are likely shocked that Jesus is acknowledging this, this faith of the Canaanite woman. He, it's so great that there, are, there is healing accompanied with it. And then we see two things about the faith of this woman that all of us would do well to look at and to emulate. First, she saw Jesus for who he really was. When she calls Jesus Lord and Son of David, she was doing something that no one else that we know of in Israel was doing at that time. She's using messianic language. She's, I mean, this is a Canaanite woman calling Jesus Son of David. She's using messianic language. The crowds weren't doing that. They wanted miracles. They wanted healing. They even, according to Mark's account, they wanted to take Jesus and make him king because they wanted him to make their life easier by ousting Rome, but they weren't acknowledging him as the long-promised savior of Israel, the, the Messiah of Israel. They didn't use that language. The woman, though, did. She believed that Jesus could heal her daughter, but not simply because he was some sort of witch doctor or soothsayer. She saw him as the promised one of Israel, the Messiah who would one day come and save the world. How she knew knew this, who knows, but she is putting all these dots together. And many of us, she saw Jesus for who he was, who he is, and many of us are tempted to look at Jesus as some good luck charm when we happen to need him the most, But we don't see our hope and joy and satisfaction in Jesus all the time through every circumstance. We keep Jesus in our back pocket for when we need him, but otherwise nothing about our lives is going to communicate that he is actually Lord and King over every aspect of our life. We're not communicating that our deepest satisfaction and joy comes from Jesus in every moment because he's just in our back pocket. We treat him more like a genie in a a lamp when we need him. And if we do that, we can actually miss him completely. Jesus isn't a genie in a bottle to be wished upon. He is a king to be bowed down to. And then second, we see that this woman didn't appeal in any way to her rights to be saved. She, she She embraced The fact that she was as uncomfortable as it felt to use the term dog. She was a Gentile outside of the covenant promises. She didn't didn't defend her right. She simply asks Jesus for mercy. Verse 27, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. When she says, yes, Lord, it's the only place that this word Lord is used in the vocative tense. So she's saying, oh, Lord. There's so much emotion in the way that she's saying, oh, Lord, there's desperation, there's devotion. This is an emotional way of her coming to Jesus. And it's so important for us to see that she's not arguing that she has any right to Jesus. She's not debating 
that her people are outside of the covenant promises of Israel. She knows they are. She isn't claiming promises in the law and the prophets that the Jews could claim. She isn't making some argument that her claim to Jesus, oh, it's, it's as good as anyone else's. She also isn't saying because of the way that she has lived her life, maybe it's different than the other Canaanites, that she deserves Jesus' blessing. She's not making any of those arguments. She simply appeals only on the basis of Jesus' mercy, saying, Lord, have mercy on me. And this is one of the most important things, I think, that our culture just doesn't see. We do tend to appeal to God and his grace based on what we have done and what he might owe us. Oh, I don't know how many years ago this was, but one time I got Angela and myself stranded in England. And uh, we, were, we were at a conference. We were kind of newly married. We were trying to come. The conference was in southern Spain, and we were trying to go back to Pisa, Italy. And we flew Ryanair. How many of you have heard of Ryanair? Y'all have flown on Ryanair, I know. And so Ryanair is like a cheap airline. We could get over there for 20 bucks a person. This is great, especially for our financial situation at that point in time. And, but you have to do everything yourself. And you pay extra if you want to do things like go to the bathroom. But you, when you schedule the, these, you have to schedule each leg. Like, you, you know, I had to schedule the first leg, the second leg, the third, fourth, whatever. And so... Our first leg was from southern Spain to Bristol, England, and then we at about 11 a.m. after we landed, we went to the desk to check in, because you have to recheck in, for our 7 p.m. flight, at which time I was informed that that was, in fact, a 7 a.m. flight, and that, that flight's already in Pisa. <laughs> and there's no other flight available for less than $1,000 a person, and so in this moment, which I didn't have $1,000, and my credit card had a $400 limit at the time. And so it was literally, I didn't know how we were going to get back. And, and I was the one who messed up. But my gut reaction was to blame somebody. You know, Ryanair's stupid for having made me do all these legs and not checking it for me. You know, Europe's stupid for having military time. If they're AM and PM, I would have clearly understood the difference between these legs. I wanted some way to blame Angela, but she didn't have any blame. I couldn't find anything. But that's what I wanted to do. When I am caught in my sin, I want to immediately blame somebody else. And this is exactly what Adam, and Eve, Adam did when Adam and Eve sinned. God confronted them, and what did Adam do? It was the woman's fault, and you gave her to me. Yeah, that, that is our disposition. When confronted with our, un, our unholiness and our sin is to blame shift. And this is why you hear people in our culture say that they feel like they're going to be okay with God because they've done more good than bad. They've lived a good life. They have a good heart, which are all functionally ways of saying, I'm earning my own salvation. And when I stand before God, God, you are going to owe me. That's what that says. And you'll remember in Revelation chapter 20, at the very end of time, all those who have put their faith in the mercy of Jesus Christ, those names are written in the book of life, and that group of people enters the kingdom. And then John records that everyone else's book is open. So that is the book of their own deeds. Those who have said intentionally or subconsciously, I'm not going to trust in the mercy of Jesus Christ. I don't want to be judged on the merits of Jesus Christ. I am going to be judged on my own merits. That happens. The books are opened and everyone is judged according to the merits of their own life. And because none of us is perfect, it doesn't go well for anyone. 
Salvation is not available to anyone until we realize, like the Canaanite woman, that we have nothing in this world to appeal to other than the mercy of Jesus Christ. Which he is not only willing to give, but desirous to give. Salvation can be ours when, in the words of Philip Melanchthon, we realize that the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. But on the other side, when we we get this and we feel it, whether it's as a believer or as God is just beginning to draw us in, how encouraging is this? I mean, how freeing is it to realize that we can't do this on our own and that we can ask Jesus for mercy, who desires to give it to us. We, we, we gladly lay aside our entitlements and our demands and simply receive the grace, just as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Now, some of you may be still wondering how we got back to Pisa. Angela, I remember, looked at me at that moment when it kind of hit the gravity of the situation, and I'm feeling that big. And she looked at me, and she said, you know what? I saw Subway sandwiches down down the way. We hadn't seen one of those in a long time. Why don't I get you a sandwich while you figure this mess out? (laughs) And then the Ryanair woman behind the ticketing counter, she said, all right, I'm not supposed to do this, but why don't you come around here and let me see if one of our competitors has a, a good flight for you? Because this was before like iPhone, you know, changing flights on the go. So I went behind the counter. This woman found me another flight that was just as cheap on a competitor, uh, uh, EasyJet. Is that who their competitor was? Yeah, it was an EasyJet flight. And it was going to take off the next morning. It wasn't very expensive. And so what was happening is the grace that everyone was offering me in that moment just made it easier for me to say, yes, I royally messed up here. And the same is true of the much greater grace that Jesus Christ offers all of us in our much greater royal mess-ups, in our sin, and our rebellion. How many of you were here in spring of 2019? Okay, the first service is mostly the 2019ers, apparently. But you may remember Ligon Duncan came in and he preached, uh, he preached Mark's account of this passage here. And, and so it's a little, makes me a little insecure that you can go online and listen to a better sermon on this passage. But he pointed out, I went back and listened to it this week and it was outstanding. And one of the observations he made that I had not made is what's going on in this account in Tyre and Sidon. This is the exact same location where Elijah was in 1 Kings 17. So there was a famine in Israel and God had said, go to this land at that point under the Assyrian rule and there I will feed you. And he goes and he finds a woman whose son had just died and he asks her for bread. And so here we are in the same place, but instead of the prophet asking the woman for bread. The woman comes to Jesus, the prophet, and asks him for bread. Just the crumbs on the table will do. That's all I'm looking for. She wants the blessing that only the Messiah can give. And as Elijah received bread from the widow to live another day and resurrected her son, so Jesus gives the woman the bread of eternal life and heals her her daughter. This is not a coincidence. 
Jesus is the greater prophet in the same location. We're seeing this. And it's also such a great picture of the parable of the treasure that Jesus gave just two chapters earlier. You may remember Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. So this parable is absolutely insane unless the treasure is overwhelmingly worth more than everything this man has. Because once you see the kingdom and all that it brings to us, we will see that that kingdom is so valuable that we will want to bring every aspect of our life under the rule and reign of that king. That's the nature of the treasure. We would be pleased even to be a house pet at the table of the king, not cynically, not begrudgingly, but desperately and joyfully. And it's interesting to me to see, like the man who found the treasure, like, sorry, like the Canaanite woman, the man who found the treasure, he found it when he was not looking for it. She didn't go looking for Jesus. Jesus came to her. He wasn't, this, this treasure, the, the guy in the parable of treasure, he wasn't some Discovery Channel treasure hunter who had devoted his whole life to finding this one specific treasure. He was a normal man going about normal business just like this woman was. Because none of us find God through our good work, through our moral, moral fortitude, or our innate spiritual wisdom. That's not how we find God. God finds us in unlikely places often, and even when we are not looking for him. It's exactly as God said to the prophet Isaiah. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. He said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Many of us, we find the treasure not only when we are not looking for God, but when we are furthest from him. And that's certainly how it happened with the Canaanite woman. It's certainly how it happened with the Apostle Paul as he was on the road to Damascus to go and persecute, arrest, even kill Christians until Jesus showed up to him. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here because you had a weird feeling that you should just go to church today. Maybe you're here because some family member or friend invited you, and maybe you feel like you're just doing them a favor today. And you are, and we're glad you're here, but maybe today is the day where God shows you the treasure, the treasure in Jesus Christ that is worth more than everything we could possibly hope in in this life. Jesus cared for the multitudes when they were hungry by feeding them. He cared for the sick and they were healed. He cared for the possessed and they were freed. He cared for the woman here and healed her daughter. And he will do the same for all who put their faith in Jesus' mercy alone. What we need to see is that we are this woman on the other side of the border. To use a more modern Western phrase, we're the person on the wrong side of the tracks. And Hardly any of us here even know what that feels like, but spiritually speaking, that's us. Unless you are ethnically Jewish, we are the dogs. We are outside. 
We are the people who should have no cultural expectation that Jesus would love or redeem us. No cultural expectation at all because we are that Canaanite woman. Just let that land. And then let this land. But he does. He loves us. He pursues us. This week, I was reading an update on the Jennifer Kessie case. I don't know if you remember this case. It was 2006, Orlando, a 24-year-old woman, UCF grad, disappeared. And now 17 years later, her parents are not only still searching for her, but they're ramping up every effort to bring her home, no matter what that means. So for them, it it was striking to me to see their pursuit of their beloved child at any cost. No, matter, like no amount of money is too much. They kept saying, we'll, just, we'll find it. No time sacrifice is too great. No rock is too insignificant to overturn. Even if that rock, as it did in one case, leads them all the way to Russia, they're not going to stop until their child is brought home. And this is a picture of our heavenly father's pursuit of his children here on this earth. His love for us is so great that Jesus would cross a border no one has ever crossed before by taking on flesh and leaving the throne room to come here and endure temptation that he would not have otherwise had to know or endure and to live here in enemy territory to give his life for us that we might be redeemed and brought into the kingdom not as house pets but as children, beloved children of the king most high. Not because we deserve it, not because we've done more good than bad, but simply because he loves us. And so we should look at this passage, and my hope for me and for everyone here is that that love that expresses itself in in mercy and grace to people who have no claim on the favor of God, that it would cause us to desire to bring every aspect of our life under his authority. Because there is where we are going to experience true satisfaction. And that it would cause us to desire for every type of person in every situation to know Jesus and be worshiping here with us at Orlando Grace Church. Let's pray. God, We do come in this passage with a deep sense of gratitude, knowing that we are the Canaanite woman. We are outside of your promises. Unless there is somebody ethnically Jewish, we have just no claim, no claim on your law or your prophets. Yet in your grace, you reach through those boundaries to us and claim us as children, not because we've earned it, but just because you love us. And we don't know why you love us. You just love us because you love us. And because you loved us, you sent your son to die for us and redeem us on that cross to receive the wrath that we deserve and to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let us feel that, that childlike relationship to you. That you love us, You want nothing but the best for us. And let that give us a desire to give you control over every aspect of our life. That every aspect of our life would proclaim to everyone around us that Jesus is king. 
And we have the great privilege and blessing of living in that kingdom. It is already and it is not yet. So keep us patient and humble and loving until the not yet is already. We pray this until the already is now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.